So let me pray, and then we'll look at this, uh, this passage together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, and Lord, thank you that uh, actually in studying it and in uh, just putting it into our hearts and our minds, actually there is joy. And so Lord, I pray you give us joy as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I know what you're thinking. I already know it. Uh, you take one look at me and you think, that's a guy who could eat a lot of waffles. I know you think it. I know that lingering somewhere in the background of your mind, you're always thinking, I bet he's eaten a waffle or two in his day. And the thing is, if you're thinking that, you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, early on in our marriage, I didn't just want the pleasure of eating waffles when we'd go out for breakfast somewhere. I wanted that pleasure all the time. Uh, I wanted it when I was at home. And so for about two months, I turned just about every single conversation with Emmy into talking about waffles. You can ask her about this later. She will confirm it. And uh, I was like, Emmy, we just, we need a waffle maker. And so we'd be talking about all sorts of things. You know, we'd talk about our jobs. Uh, we'd talk about our family. We'd talk about church. You know, really important is we talk about Jesus. And somehow I was able to always turn that conversation towards getting a waffle maker. You know how it goes. So it'd be like, Emmy, you know, I was reading Colossians chapter one. And it says that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus and through Jesus. Would you just think about that? Do you know what that means? It means that ultimately the waffle maker was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. We really should get a waffle maker for Jesus. <laughs> now, why did I do that? It's because at that time I thirsted for a waffle maker. I wanted one so badly. Um, you know, I'm a man of simple tastes, just a waffle maker is all I need. And I thirsted for that. And so I made everything, every conversation with Emmy be about that until I got the thing I wanted. Um, by the way, Emmy didn't buy me the waffle maker, but her sister did. So I still got it in the end. Uh, but no matter what it is, when you thirst for something, you, you, you end up orienting your whole life around it. Uh, it's what you think about. It's what you talk about. It's what you dream about. It's what you spend your money and your time on. You just, you begin to invest everything about your life into that thing. It's, it's actually the reason that you, you say no to all kinds of other good things. Like you might actually say no to certain good things because there's one thing that you want ultimately. Um, and you know, just that thing that you thirst for. And that's what's going on in today's passage. Jesus meets a woman who has oriented her whole life around her thirst for something. And the question we're asking today, and each time we've asked uh, in this series of messages is how does Jesus treat her? What methods does he use to offer her renewal? And the truth is, is that every single one of us, we have a thirst for something. Something we've oriented our entire lives around in order to get that thing. And for some of us, it's, it's sort of right out there on the surface. You know, it's, it's our career. It, you know, it's a, the obvious things. Our career, our money, it's success, it's family, it's marriage. It's, you know, the things that everyone can see. For others, maybe it's hidden. It's It's secret. It's a secret pleasure that if anybody knew, you'd be ashamed. But it's there, and you thirst for it, and you're unsatisfied until you get it. Now, the point of this passage is to show us that no matter what it is that we thirst for, and no matter how much of it we get, that when or if we get it, it will always leave us unsatisfied. We will always thirst again. That's what Jesus shows the Samaritan woman, and that's what we'll see if we take a, a close look at these verses. And so what's Jesus' method with the Samaritan woman? How does he treat her? Here's how he does it. First, he breaks through every barrier. Second, he gives her a life-changing metaphor. And then thirdly, he actually welcomes all of her friends. 
So he breaks through every barrier, gives her a life-changing metaphor, and he welcomes all of her friends. So first, he, he breaks through these barriers. And, and we need to understand a little bit of the context in order to understand which barriers it is that Jesus is breaking through. Because on the surface to us, it, you know, this is just a religious man talking to a non-religious woman in a public setting. Seem, seems like a normal thing. Seems like an everyday sort of thing. But there's a lot more going on here than that. Because first of all, back in the first century, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. They hated each other. They, they hated each other politically. They hated each other religiously. And so they had these squabbles, these fights going back and forth where they, they wouldn't associate with one another. And the, the, the hatred between these two groups, between their, their politics and their religion, was so strong that no Jew would ever travel through Samaria. And the way the land worked is like Jerusalem is down in the south, Galilee is up in the north. Those are parts of Israel. And right in the middle is this land called Samaria. And so if a Jew wanted to get from south to north or north to south, they either had to travel through Samaria or they would go around. Most Jews would go around. That's how much they hated these people. They would just avoid it. And if they had to travel through, they would do it as quickly as possible. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that, that they, would, they would avoid them at all costs. And so that's one thing that's going on here. The second thing that's going on here is not only did the Jews and Samaritans hate and avoid one another, but also in that society... Uh, a man doesn't speak to a woman in public who he's not related to. So you wouldn't just strike up a conversation if you're a man with a woman if you weren't related to her. And so there are these other barriers, uh, you know, sociological barriers that would normally keep a man like Jesus talking from not just a, a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And then when it even comes to this specific woman, this Samaritan woman, who, by the way, we never learn her name, the Samaritan woman is actually, a, she's a moral outcast. And as you read on, you find out that she's been married five times, and even now she's living with a man who isn't her husband, which again, in our context today, not so scandalous. You might read that and think, yeah, I know people like that. They're fine. They're nice people. But in the first century, not just amongst religious people, but across all of society in that part of the world, this sort of behavior was utterly immoral and scandalous. And so think about that. There are political barriers. There are religious barriers, there are sociological barriers, and there are moral barriers. These are all the things, by the way, that, you know, if you, you go to a dinner party, these are all the things that, you know, you don't talk about. You don't bring up politics at a dinner party, you don't bring up religion, you don't bring up socioeconomic class, and you don't bring up people's morals, because these are the things that divide people. You will, like, ruin the dinner party if you bring up any of these topics. And here you have Jesus. He's male, single, religious, moral and Jewish. All of these things should keep Jesus from speaking to this woman. And yet, with just one question, he breaks through all of those barriers. And what's amazing about Jesus is, with this one question, he actually engages her in a deep conversation about her entire life. And if you look at this passage, did you notice, by the way, how surprised she is? How shocked she was that Jesus would even speak with her? Look again at verse 9. She says, you're a Jew and you're talking to me? Now, this is surprise, this is shock, this is wonder, but it's the pleasant kind. It's the, wow, you're talking to me? You would talk to me? I used to have this job when I was in college back in Chicago, and I worked at the gym. Great job for somebody who likes waffles. And uh, all the NBA teams that would come to play the Chicago Bulls, they would come and practice at our gym. And so throughout my four years of working there, I, I saw, I rubbed shoulders with every single NBA legend that you can think of. Everyone from like Larry Bird and Michael Jordan down to Muggsy Bogues, 
uh, with Yao Ming as well. I saw him when he was trying out for the, they were all there. I saw all of them. But here's the thing. Not one of them ever paid attention to me. Not one of them. Uh, you know, I would open the door for them. I would hand them water. I would give them a towel. But none of them looked me in the eye. None of them paid any attention to me whatsoever. But one day, there was a guy. He actually played for the Bulls for a while named John Sally. And uh, John Sally walked up to the desk where I was working. And do you know what John Sally wanted to do? He just wanted to hang out. And so for 45 minutes, me and John Sally, leaning on the desk, looking each other in the eye, talking to each other. I even made him laugh once, which I feel really good about, because after he retired, he went on to be a comedian. And so I made this guy laugh. And it was for 45 minutes, and I remember thinking, as we're talking, and time is going on, and I'm like, I'm supposed to be changing the laundry in the back, but I'm talking to John Sally. I remember thinking, like, you're a star. Like, you're up here, and I'm down here. And yet you're talking to me. You're hanging out with me. We're, we're, we're like treating each other like, like we're equals. You want to talk to me? And that's the kind of surprise, joyful shock the Samaritan woman expresses in verse 9. And so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the salvation that Jesus Christ offers is for everyone. That it actually breaks through every single barrier that we could put up. And here... Do you know how something breaks through the the barrier of politics, of religion, of social norms, of morality? Do you know how somebody breaks through those things? There's only one way it works. It's humility. That's the only way to break through those barriers is humility. These strong barriers, the ones that divide people to the point often of violence. The only way to break through that is to humble yourself. And that is exactly what Jesus does. Because look at the question he asked her in verse 7. He says, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? Just think about this. Here you have the creator of the universe, the one who created water, the one who created human beings in such a way that they need water. And yet here he is, exhausted from his journey, at the hottest point of the day, and he asks for a drink. Now, that's showing us something vitally important about the nature of Jesus Christ. It's actually showing us his humanity. You know, in his deity, because he's he's got this dual nature. He's totally God and totally man. And in his deity, he's utterly self-sufficient, which means he has no need of anything. And yet, as John says back in chapter 1 of this same book, it says he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. That he took on a human nature. And so in his humanity, he's thirsty. In another place, when talking about Jesus becoming a man, it says he humbled himself, becoming a man. And so in just one question, Jesus Christ reveals to the Samaritan woman this complete and utter humility. In every way, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of his message. The, the gospel message, as we'll see as we go on, is this, that Christian salvation, it's a gift that you receive. It's not a wage that you earn. Because think about this. What disqualifies you from getting your wage? What's the one thing that disqualifies you from getting paid? It's that you didn't work. But what disqualifies you from receiving a gift? It's not work. It's pride. It's the opposite of humility. Pride makes the person say, I don't want your charity. You keep your gift. And so the only way a person can become a Christian is through humility. You must give up your pride and humble yourself. And and this is what Jesus Christ is embodying. Not 
not only as he asks for a drink of water, but as he breaks through every single barrier that could divide, the barrier of politics, of religion, of social norms, of morality. If you can break through those, you can break through any barrier. And Jesus Christ, by simply asking this woman a question, she, he, he breaks through all of them. Can I have a drink? Now, this applies to us on a couple of levels. One level is for the person who isn't yet a Christian. And that whatever barrier, whatever barrier you think is there between you and Jesus, it's actually only there because you put it there. Because when Jesus Christ, when he took on flesh and became a human, he humbled himself. In other words, he broke down every barrier that there is between you and him. And so the only barrier between you and him that's left is the one that you build. And what this passage shows us is that Jesus loves you no matter your background, no matter your political affiliation, no matter your moral record. And if you'll humble yourself and come to him, you'll find that he himself, he's already humbled himself in order to come to you. He's already come all the way to you. The God of the universe, humbling himself, becoming a man, coming all the way to you. That's one way that it applies. Is that the barrier that are between us and Jesus. They're, they're just the ones that we build. It also applies to the Christian, by the way. If you're a Christian, then it means that to be a Christian is to be humble. You enter into Christianity by humbling yourself, by setting aside your pride, and, and then you go on living in humility. Which means, as a Christian, we, we can't be the ones who build barriers. The Christian doesn't get to build barriers. And so when you, who are very, oftentimes very unlike uh, the people around you, the people that you work with, the people that you live near, it, when you're very unlike them because of your beliefs, when, when people that are unlike you, when they meet you, when they get to know you, when you work with them, what they should say about you is, you know, I might not buy into their worldview, but man, are they humble. And I have to respect them for that. And so for the Christian, we should, we should be humble. That, that's at the core of who we are because the person who we follow, he lived this embodied humility. And so the first thing that Jesus does with a Samaritan woman is he breaks down every barrier between him and her. The second thing he does is he gives her this life-changing metaphor. And the life-changing metaphor that Jesus gives to her, it actually has to do with what we were talking about earlier. Remember we said that no matter what it is, when you thirst for something, it becomes what you orient your whole life around. It's what you think about, what you talk about, what you dream about. It's where you spend your money and your time. It's, it's the reason you'll say no to all kinds of good things in order to have this one thing that you thirst for. And this is common to all humanity. Everyone is willing to give up something to get something they want more. And Jesus draws on this in verse 10 and in verses 13 and 14 when he uses this metaphor of living water. Look at where he says it in verse 13 and 14. Says Jesus answered, everyone who Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now again, this is a metaphor, but what he's saying is your soul craves for something. Sex, money success, family, power, notoriety, some kind of legacy. Your soul thirsts for something, but whatever it is you try and fill it with, what he's saying is it's going to leave you thirsty again. 
on a really hot day, if I've been outside moving around, walking around, you know, maybe doing some yard work or something in the heat, the thing I crave when I'm hot and when I'm thirsty is an ice cold, then poured over ice, preferably in a styrofoam cup because it keeps it colder, cup of Dr. Pepper. That's what I want in that moment. Nothing else sounds good to me. I crave it. I thirst for it. That's the thing that I want. But it always leaves me thirsty. It actually leaves me more thirsty than I was before. So what it's doing is it's satisfying my taste, but not my thirst. And what Jesus is saying with these words, with this metaphor, is there are all these things that that you thirst after. Things that you will give up even to get them, good things that you'll give up, but they, they don't satisfy your thirst. They only satisfy your taste. And so think about it. What is that for you? Again, it could be just about anything. It could be fame. It could be fortune. It could be money. Or it could be more mundane. It could be, it could be the thing that you want the most is like your social calendar filled. Maybe it... Maybe you just want to be noticed at work for something. Maybe it's to have a better house, a better car, better kids than your siblings, right? You want your siblings to know that you're the better one. Whatever it is, the life-changing metaphor that Jesus uses is to say those things, they might satisfy your taste, but they will always leave you thirsty if you get them. And what Jesus has to offer will satisfy your thirst. It will actually fill you up spiritually. And that's the conversation Jesus goes on to have with the woman by the well. She actually says to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, you read that and and she says this and you think, well, she's not really getting the metaphor yet. She doesn't quite grasp what Jesus is trying to say. And so Jesus uh, tries a different tactic. He uses what seems like the non sequitur of all non sequiturs. A non sequitur, by the way, is a conclusion that doesn't logically follow from what's said before. Here's an example. Uh, a few years ago, I was eating lunch with some of my coworkers, and I'm sure we were talking about something mundane, something like what we watched on TV. Downton Abbey, I think, was on at the time, so I was probably complaining about it or something. And so we're having this whole lunch conversation about this, and then you know how it goes. Like you, you kind of run out of things to say, and there's a lull in the conversation. And then somebody will jump in. Well, this person who I worked with jumped in, and she was famous for these non-sequiturs. And uh, talking about Downton Abbey, and all of a sudden she says, so speaking of eunuchs, <laughs> we're like, we, we weren't talking about eunuchs. That's not what, we weren't even remotely talking about eunuchs. And it took us about five minutes to realize how she got there in her brain, and there was a reason, but is it, is, that maybe was the second non-sequitur of all non-sequiturs. But back to our story, the woman says, give me some water. And then Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. Seems like a non sequitur, but it's not. It's actually extremely on topic because in telling her to go and call her husband, Jesus points directly to the thing in her life that her thirst drives her to. Let's read on verse 17. She's, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. And so what is Jesus trying to point out to her? 
what he's trying to show her is that her desire for men, and we don't know if that's sexual or if it's that she just has this ideal of the perfect spouse and every time a man doesn't live up to it, she gets rid of him. We, we don't know exactly what it is, but what we do know is that her desire, in other words, her thirst to have a man in her life is pointing to her real thirst. Uh, St. Augustine, he's an early church father. He put it this way in his, his book, Confessions. He says to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. And what he's saying is, we will continue to chase after unsatisfying thirst after unsatisfying thirst after unsatisfying thirst until we finally find that thirst in Christ. Put another way, we thirst and thirst and thirst until that thirst is satisfied with the living water that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here's the point. All of our thirst, be it success, money, power, sex, stability, the American dream, whatever it is, all of our thirsts are actually given by God to point to our true spiritual thirst. That we would finally come to the end and realize none of these things are satisfying and so we have to turn to a spiritual thirst. And what Jesus Christ says back in verse 14 is the water that he gives. Look, at, look with me uh, at this again. The water he gives, verse 14, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So do you see what you're really thirsty for? What you're really longing for is eternal life. All the thirsts you have are pointing to that deeper spiritual thirst. And what Jesus Christ says to this woman and what he says to you and me is, I have water that will satisfy your thirst for all of eternity. It won't just satisfy your taste at the moment, it will satisfy you eternally. Which means if you take the water that Jesus offers, it actually means you can, you can stop chasing after all these things. It actually means you can rest. And ask ourselves, do I thirst for that thing, that object, that outcome, that person more than I thirst for God? Because if I do, it will only ever, if I get it, satisfy my taste and not my thirst. And so then I'll start striving again and thirsting again and chasing again. And if you chase after satisfying your taste and not your thirst, here's what I think you're going to find. You're going to find yourself, and you probably are finding yourself tired, worn out disappointed, dissatisfied. And when I talk to people around Los Angeles and I ask them how they're really doing, they usually use one of those words. They'll say tired. They'll say worn out. They'll reveal in some way they're dissatisfied about something in their life. Tired from work, worn out from life. Why are they so tired? Why so dissatisfied? Well, it's because they're chasing after taste and not thirst. And so what about you? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you dissatisfied? And could it be that you're chasing after taste and not thirst? Jesus says, anyone who drinks the water I give, it will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, what happens next in the story, we're going to mostly save for another day. I don't know what that day is, but we'll talk about it someday, I'm sure. 
they end up having this discussion about worship and about how to worship and where to worship and this whole big ordeal. But that leads them to the woman saying to Jesus down in verse 25, she says, I know that the Messiah will come one day. And in response to that, in verse 26, Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And then she does something that I think is also pleasantly surprising. So Jesus already did something pleasantly surprising. Now she does something pleasantly surprising. She, she drops her bucket, verse 28, and runs back into town to tell her friends. And that leads us to point three. Jesus welcomes all of her friends. Look at verse 29. She says to her friends back in the, in the town, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, what she's doing is what is called evangelism. And the word evangelism, it literally means to spread the good news. Now, evangelism is something I think most of us hear, and we cringe for one reason or another. I saw a few of your shoulders kind of go up, you know, when I said the word. And if you're not a Christian, you might hear that word and think, you know, isn't isn't that narrow-minded? Or if you are a Christian, you might think, well, if I, you know, Aren't I going to come across as narrow-minded? And going around and saying that Jesus is the only way to salvation, he's the only way to renewal, he's the only way to have my spiritual longing set, isn't that narrow-minded? And I once heard a pastor put it this way, but I'm going to put my own spin on it. I have a friend who, uh, when COVID first started spreading across the world, she was already part of this research team at Oxford, and her research team is the one that got moved and put on, like, coming up with a vaccination. And uh, she actually helped come up with the vaccination that many of us probably got. She was part of that team. Now, when they figured it out, after months of work, uh, when they figured out that their formula actually produces immunity against the disease, what did they do? Did they keep it to themselves? Did they keep it quiet? No, they told the whole world. And when they did that, some people thought, yeah, okay, you got it, you're right. You, You did it. But then there were others who thought, I don't know, you might be wrong. That that might not work. But I can tell you what nobody thought when when this team in Oxford said we figured it out. Nobody said, oh, how narrow-minded of you. Nobody said that. Of course, someone thought that because of the greatness of the claim, that if it's true, it's wonderful. They might be right, they might be wrong, but to claim that they have the cure, that's not narrow. It could be right, it could be right, but it's not narrow. And don't you see that it's the same with Christians? When Christians experience the living water, when their entire lives are changed for the good because they believe the gospel, when their spiritual thirst is finally satisfied to share that news with their friends, with their family, to share that news with the world, that's not narrow. And so you might be an outsider to Christianity, or you might be thinking, I don't know if my friends can handle me talking about it. You know, but if you're that outsider, you might, you might think, well, they might be right, they might be wrong, but, it's, but it would actually be irrational to say that they're narrow, that Christians are narrow. Because if you really believe you found this, you know, back to our illustration, if, if you found the cure for COVID, to not share that with the world would be both unloving and unreasonable. And the same is true with the Christian gospel. If you really believe you found the cure for your spiritual thirst, to not share that with the world would be unloving and unreasonable. It would actually make you immoral. You see, you can't call evangelism narrow. The only thing that evangelism can be is loving. To do evangelism is to love the person that you're sharing the gospel with. 
And that's exactly what the Samaritan woman does. She loves her friends. She loves the people in her town. And so she expresses that love to them by going to them and sharing this good news. And then when she does, look what happens. Look down at verse 30. She went and said, hey, this guy, he might be the Messiah. And then in verse 30, it says, they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. And then verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And I love this part of the story. Did you notice what it said in verse 40? It says they urged him to stay and so he stayed for two more days. He stayed two more days. Remember, this is a pit stop. This is a place to get a drink of water and some lunch and then move on and get right out of Samaria. Because remember, Jews either avoided Samaria or they moved through as quickly as they possibly could. But Jesus stays two days with them. Now here's the point of that. Jesus has all the time in the world for our friends. The friends who you think would never want to hear about Jesus, the friends who you think Jesus could never change, the ones who you think are the furthest away from Jesus, you know, the, the Samaritans in your life, as it were. And by the way, this lady's friends were probably also moral outcasts. You know, they were those people. And Jesus stayed two days with them. He had all the time in the world for them, and, and here's why. He has living water for everyone. He has living water for everyone. And what's amazing about that is the reason that he's able to give this living water to everyone is because at one point he himself went without water. Both physical water, but even more spiritual living water that he received from God the Father through God the Holy Spirit. Over in John chapter 19, the very same book that we're looking at, uh, Jesus, this, this book where he talked about having living water and giving it out. In John 19, verse 28, Jesus says, he says, I'm thirsty. Take a look, it'll be on the screen. John 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. In this moment, Jesus Christ is being crucified. He's, he's been nailed to a cross and is nearing his last breath. In fact, at this point, it must have been almost impossible for him to speak. Almost, he must have, just think of the amount of energy that he must have needed to muster up to say something at this point. He's like breaths away from his last breath. In English, it's three words. In Greek, it's just one word. And with this one word, he utters something so profound when you put that next to what we've been looking at in John chapter 4. The one who gives out eternal living water, the one who says, if you drink the water that he gives, will never thirst again. And the word he says, translated in English, I thirst. I thirst. Why? Well, it's because in this moment, Jesus Christ has been cut off from that living water. That when Jesus Christ is dying on the cross, at that moment, for the first and only time in all of eternity, he is cut off from God the Father and God the Spirit. The Bible actually says in this same book in John that Jesus Christ was loved by the Father from all eternity. He is, 
all eternity. He is the eternally loved Son of God. And yet in this moment, he is rejected by God the Father because it was in this moment that Jesus Christ was bearing the sins of the world. He was bearing my sin and bearing your sin. And his second to last word, the penultimate word that he speaks before he dies is, I thirst. And by the way, the drink they gave him was... They, they did give him a drink when he said that. It was this unsatisfying concoction of vinegar, which is neither pleasant nor satisfying. That was his last drink on earth. But can you see what this symbolizes? That Jesus went thirsty. He drank the vinegar so that you and I don't have to thirst ever again. We don't have to thirst any longer. We don't have to live another moment without living water because Jesus Christ said, I thirst. And that was the second to last word that he said. Do you know what the last word was? Again, in, in English, it, it translates in the NIV as three words, but in Greek, it's just one word. So he, he just, he said, I thirst, one word. And then over in John 19, verse 30, it says this, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It's just one word. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And what the death of Jesus Christ accomplishes, that's the good news. The good news that all of a person's sins can be forgiven. And not only that, but God will pour out spiritual blessings upon anybody who puts their hope in Jesus Christ for salvation. In other words, you never have to say, I thirst. At Romans 5.5, 5, it might be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. It says this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, poured into, that's a water metaphor. God's love being poured out into our hearts. Now, maybe you're a Christian and you're saying, well, it doesn't feel like any of this. I don't feel like any of this is applying to me at the moment. I don't feel like that. I don't feel like God's love is poured out to me. I feel thirsty. All I feel these days are trials, are challenges, are suffering, is difficulty. Well, do you know what it says just before this verse? Romans 5, 3. It says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And then verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been, water image, poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we tend to think that God's love is being poured out into our hearts when things are good. But we have everything we want. And of course that is true because Romans 5.5 5 is always true. But what this is saying, it's saying that even more when we're suffering. Even more when we're facing trials of every kind. Even more in the times that we have to persevere. Even more in the times when, when we're dissatisfied. That is when we can know the love of God the most. We glory in our sufferings, and it's bookended with God pours his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Now, why am I showing you this? It's because often when things are a struggle, oftentimes when we're facing trials, suffering, difficulty, when we're disappointed, that is often when we thirst for things that don't satisfy 
Those are the times when we run to only what will taste good in the moment, but like vinegar, the vinegar that Jesus drank as his last drink, it will not only be unsatisfying, but it will turn out to be unpleasant. And instead, what's being offered is to drink the living water that comes from Jesus. That gives us eternal life. Now, how do you do that? It's really simple, ordinary stuff. Really simple, ordinary stuff. It's in his word. It's in fellowship with other believers in his church, and it's through prayer. You know, when they teach you to preach, they always tell you, hey, you know, don't make your application be read your Bible more, go to church more, and pray more. Uh, you know, give, give people something other than that. I don't have anything else to give you. <laughs> How do you drink the living water? It's through the things that God's given us. He's given us his word, he's given us his church, and he's given us the ear of Christ to listen to us. What else is there? Those are the three things that Jesus gave us in order to access this living water. Now, if I get super practical, I don't do this very often, but uh, it was mentioned earlier that uh, we've got midweek groups that are starting up in September, middle of September. And do you know what we do in those midweek groups? We open up the word of God. We have fellowship with one another. We encourage each other. We challenge each other. We hold each other accountable. And we pray together. Those are the three things. So if you want to know where to get living water, that'd be a great place to start. On a Wednesday night or a Thursday night. If you want to drink from the living water that Jesus offers day by day by day, it, it is, it's those three things. If you orient your life around those things, those three things, his word, his church, his listening ear, what you'll find is that your spiritual thirst is being satisfied. And you'll find yourself running less and less and less to the things that only satisfy your taste and not your thirst. Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you water that is like a spring welling up to eternal life. Let's come to him now. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you and we ask you for this living water. That it would spring up in us into eternal life that it would keep us from desiring all the things that only satisfy our taste and not our thirst. And Lord, in that, may our souls find rest and find rest in you alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.